Here we are back in Matthew chapter 27. We'll be looking about the 57th verse. It's a long chapter, isn't it? But um, so much here, so much rich stuff here. Of course, we're going to be including the other Gospels as well. I'm going to start talking about uh, one of the great creeds of Christianity, a very early one, the Apostles' Creed. In its basic form, it dates all the way back to the second century, so we're talking right after the apostolic time, basically. When I was a little Lutheran, we used to recite the Apostles' Creed every week in church, which is not a bad idea, actually. Um, so anyway, it's ingrained in my head. I can never get it out, even if I want to, but I don't want to. I love it. But uh, creeds, by their nature, are usually shorter and good, concise language, very concise ways of speaking biblical truth in a way that's easy to remember, easy to grasp, avoiding unnecessary words. Um, the Apostles' Creed is beautifully Trinitarian. It starts with the Father, Son, and goes to the Holy Spirit, and then a little extra stuff there. And I just want to read the first part of it related to the Father and the Son, and this is how it sort of rolls. If you were raised in a more formal church like I was, the words will be very familiar. So here's the part on the Father and the Son. This is how it begins. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And he descended into Hades. On the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge, well, ours used to say the quick and the dead. You know, quick means alive. And uh, the living and the dead. So this morning I want to focus on this one phrase in there, crucified, dead, and buried. The burial of Jesus is always listed in the great creeds. It is, of course, a very important part of the story. Indeed, when you think about how Jesus died, it's actually pretty remarkable that he got buried at all. Uh, more on that in just a minute here. But creeds like the Apostles' Creed, where they emphasize these key elements, crucified, dead, and buried, things like that, that follows really a pattern set by the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, is often considered a creed. It may have actually been, a, or at least portions of it, a creedal statement that every Christian in Corinth would have known, but uh, because it's got a kind of a formulaic pattern to it. But Paul says, regarding the resurrection, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So notice how he specifically mentions the burial of Jesus. That's really important because it's preparatory. Usually a, a burial is not preparatory to anything else. It's sort of the end of the story, right? The, the life is over. Only a few paragraphs, uh, appropriate remarks said over the, the grave need to be made regarding the life of the deceased. And then we mourn, and then life goes on, and we move forward. Um, if the material world is all there is, then the grave represents the end, the end of a life. That's all there is. You know, um, Thomas Jefferson, our third president, uh, was a philosophical rationalist and a, a skeptic when it came to uh, religious matters. He edited his own version of the Gospels, 
literally cut and pasted it, put it together. And he, what he did was he cut out all the miracles. And he called it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And now Jefferson believed in God as an idea of some sort of God, but he philosophically rejected the possibility of miracles. He believed that Jesus taught the highest moral ethic that the world has ever seen, so he wanted to preserve that and honor that and live by that. He would read through that at night. But he didn't believe Jesus was divine or that he died for our sins or anything like that. So can you guess how his life of Jesus ended? The conclusion of it? This is how, we, this is how it goes. Then they took the body of Jesus, wound it in linen cloths with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There they laid Jesus and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. That's the end. That's how it ends. No, no victory there, but just the end of a life. That seems about right for an 18th century American that's totally steeped in French philosophy. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's easy for him to put uh, the Jesus of the Bible aside because Jesus' whole life was a miracle from the birth all the way through, and pretty amazingly so. But I have to tell you, there were eyewitnesses of these events 1,800 years before Mr. Jefferson was alive. There were people who knew Jesus, people to whom his death, when it happened, was the end of their hopes on earth, and those same people suddenly exploded across the world proclaiming that he was risen. And we can't let that go. We can't ignore the fact that that happened, that they said the grave could not hold him. He was certainly dead, and to them he had most assuredly risen. Both those things were true. So his burial in the Bible is a necessary preparation for the big event of his resurrection. Why was his burial necessary? Why was that important? Well, that's really important because typically victims of a Roman crucifixion were not accorded a burial. In fact, even a Roman citizen, even a prominent Roman citizen, if you were convicted of a capital crime and you were punished with death, you could not have a proper burial. That was one of the punishments for committing a crime at that level where your life would be forfeited. Um, in fact, if you read Roman history, you might notice that when emperors got mad at somebody and they knew that they were kind of on the bad guy list, a lot of pretty famous people would commit suicide. Now, one of those reasons is because maybe they don't want to die in a rough way or in a public way or something like that, but um, one, of the, one of the big reasons was because you could not have a proper burial and they wanted to have their remains taken care of properly in their family mausoleum or their estate or whatever, so uh, they would kill themselves first. So, um, a, 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 what they did with crucified people, especially criminals, especially non-citizens like Jesus, just people out there in the sticks somewhere in the far-flung edges of the empire, they would just take their bodies and throw them on the, the ash heap, the trash heap in the, in the city or wherever it was. Wherever they dumped stuff that was burning trash, they'd throw dead bodies in there, the bodies of the crucified. So, you can see why an end like that for Jesus would have made the resurrection story very uncertain. So it's very important that he be 
buried because um, resurrected out of an ash heap on the thing is like a totally different kind of experience here. The body of Jesus needed to rest in a place that was identifiable. I heard a skeptic one time, uh, I was very young, I was a new Christian and he was a kind of a national radio talk show host guy and he was mocking the idea of Jesus' resurrection and he said, by the way, we know that the Romans would take bodies and just throw them on a trash heap. I mean, that's what they did. So that he could not have risen the way it's described in the Bible. And at the time I was like, wow, that's kind of amazing. But then I learned, uh, read a very extensive article in a biblical archaeological review about uh, this man whose body has been found. So in 1968, there was a construction project going on in Jerusalem and they uncovered a first century tomb with an ossuary in it containing the remains of a crucified man. Now an ossuary is like a stone box. It's about yay big, about that deep, and um, the bones of the deceased would be put in there. If you were a more well-to-do family, you could afford these things, and that's where your remains would end up. This man's name was Johannan. It was actually carved on the ossuary. That was typical to put the person's name on the box. He had a cleft palate. He was very young. His body had has been studied more thoroughly than I think just about any ancient body by science because he was a crucified man. That's the only actual physical example we have of somebody that was crucified. The nail that was driven through his foot, his, his feet weren't put together. They were on each side of the, the wood and then nails driven in like that. But on one of his legs, the, the nail that went through his foot hit a knot and, and curled and bent like that so they couldn't get it out. So when they were going to bury him, they had to chop the whole thing apart. So he's actually, there's a, a, a bone, his ankle bone is there with, with a nail still in it. And you can see that. There's great pictures of that. And um, uh, you can study that. Just go online and look that up. So um, what we're about to read regarding Jesus' body, having received a proper burial, we know that could have and did actually happen at times. So, so for this young man, who was about a generation later than Jesus, probably sometime in the late 50s or early 60s, when he had his burial, the governor or whoever was in charge did allow his family to take him home and bury him. So it could happen. That's not a, a wild idea. So that, that's what's going to happen with Jesus. And why does that have to happen? Well, we said he needs a definite place to be buried so that the resurrection can be clear that that's what actually happened. Also, it was prophesied. So in the greatest chapter on uh, the atoning death of Jesus in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, which prophesies Messiah dying for the sins of his people, it also says this. I'm going to start at verse 7, Isaiah 53 verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? So being cut off is to be killed. Then it says in verse 9, His grave was assigned with wicked men, Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So, in the greatest of all prophecies about the death of the Messiah, 
and specifically says he was to be buried with wicked men. He did belong on the trash heap according to typical custom. And that's so specific in Isaiah, who wrote 700 years before this happened. But he ended up where? With a rich man, in his rich man's tomb. So that was prophesied, so that has to be fulfilled. So he's supposed to be buried with wicked men. He ends up with a rich man. How is God going to work that out? I mean, Jesus' family was working class. It was unlikely they could have gained his body from the governor. They had no clout. Jesus' disciples were hiding, and none of them were rich. Now, Jesus did have some rich friends and wealthy supporters. In fact, Lazarus, his friend, wasn't too far away. And um, he might could have afforded a situation like that. But how could they have obtained a tomb for Jesus within a matter of hours on Passover when the whole festival is going and everybody's getting ready for the Passover meal that night? And right before the Sabbath, which, which was at dusk, so there's only a couple hours to make this thing even happen. Even if somebody wanted to go buy a tomb and put all that together, they couldn't have done it. It's an impossible task within the circumstances. So, Lord, how could this happen that Jesus could get into a tomb with a rich man like it says there? Well, you might know that God's plans are never frustrated. So, by a remarkable occurrence, a heretofore unknown disciple of Jesus steps forward. He is rich. He is a man of influence. He has a tomb nearby that he owns already, doesn't have to acquire it, that has never been used. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. And Matthew's account is very brief but very clear in Matthew 27, 57. It says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. So this one, this is one place in the gospel, one of the few where Mark gives more detail, quite a bit more detail than Matthew or Luke or John does, which is pretty interesting. But so I suspect that Mark knew this Joseph fellow, Joseph of Arimathea. But in Mark chapter 15, verse 42, it says, when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So Mark tells us a lot more about Joseph than Matthew does. So he's a very interesting fellow, this Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the high council. That's the Sanhedrin. That's the council that condemned Jesus. He was a man of deep faith. He, he's just not going through the motions of religion or sort of cultural religion. He was looking for the kingdom of God. He was waiting. Luke says he was a member of the council, I'm quoting, was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their plan and action. So he was not in on condemning Jesus. Now some people speculate he may not have um, been included in council deliberations. Some speculate that he, because the first trial was at night and illegal, he may have refused to participate in something like that. Or he could have been there and just kept quiet, not supported, condemned, or said a word. We don't really know. We do know that he is a somewhat timid person. In other words, it's not easy for him to stand up on his own against the crowd. Um, he may have been too timid to speak up. It's 
it's hard to go against everybody. It's hard to go stand against the mob. It's hard when everybody's angry and everybody's agreeing and you're the kind of oddball to get up and say something against everybody. That's a, that takes a lot of courage. It's not every man or woman that can do that. Do you remember the blind parents, I mean the blind man's parents in John chapter 9, the man that Jesus healed, the blind man? The Pharisees didn't believe that Jesus had done it, right? So they were trying to figure out if he'd ever really been blind or if this was a trick or something like that. And they, they go to his parents and they say, was he really blind? You know, they want a clear answer. And their answer to that is pretty interesting. This is in John chapter 9, verse 20. This is, well, we know that he is our son, that he was born blind, and now he sees. We do not know or who opened his eyes. We do not know. So he says, how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, why wouldn't why wouldn't parents whose son just got his sight and would be thrilled about that be so sort of dour on just saying, yeah, you bet, Jesus healed him. It's like amazing. It's incredible. Why would they not want to do that? Well, John actually tells us. John chapter 9, verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Excommunication from the life of Israel. That's a nearly unbearable penalty because it meant being ostracized socially uh, as well as just not being able to go to synagogue anymore. Your friends would reject you. You would lose your standing in society. Maybe your business. It's sort of like being a Mormon in a very small Mormon community in Utah where everybody's a Mormon and saying, I don't believe this stuff. Um, you probably are going to lose some friends and business that way. It's, it's going to be hard to function. Well, that's true in Israel too during those times. So people were afraid to be put out. John's Gospel also says later on, it says, nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. So that was a general issue with people that thought, you know, I think Jesus is the Messiah, but they, they aren't going to say anything because they don't want to be kicked out. So in certain places, at least, the synagogue rulers were pretty adamant that if you confess Jesus as the Messiah or if you acknowledged him in some special way, you would be put out. You'd be excommunicated. So openly embracing Jesus, what do you think that would mean for Joseph as a member of the Sanhedrin who had worked so hard to condemn Jesus to death? What would that say about his life from now on? It wouldn't be the same, would it? He would be rejected. He'd be ostracized. His very place in the community would be in jeopardy. So although he's been a secret disciple and had been fearful of openly supporting Jesus, the Gospels say he worked up his courage. He found his courage to go and ask Pilate for the body. Once he goes publicly to Pontius Pilate, everyone is going to know. Mark 15.44 says, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So this is going to out him as a follower of Jesus, but he decided that it was worth it. And what's so interesting to me is he decided that after Jesus was dead. I mean, now's the time to say, well, you know, 
he was a good man. I, I really believed in him, but uh, now that he's dead, I guess I don't have to say anything. But it's at this time, maybe he felt bad that he didn't stand up for Jesus sooner than that, but he really wants to take care of his body. He Enough to out himself. That's pretty substantial. I, I really admired Joseph. I think that's really something. All of us, I think, have moments when the fear of man kind of gets in the way of boldly proclaiming what we really believe and who Jesus is and standing up against the tide of, you know, people that all have some opinion and we're the lone person there and that kind of situation. But he conquered that fear. And he put it all on the line to be identified with Jesus in his death after he really didn't have to do it anymore. I find that really impressive. So he decided to stand out. And it's, it's a big deal for a member of the council that condemned Jesus as a blasphemer to ask for his body and then take it and put it in his own tomb. That's a big step. So I don't think it was easy for him at all, but he did it. Love was stronger than fear, the love that he had for Christ. So he just couldn't handle the idea of Jesus' body being thrown in the Jerusalem ash heap to, to be burned with the trash. It needed care. That body needed care, immediate care, because sundown was coming and it had to happen right now. So he asked the governor and the governor says, okay, you know, Pilate's willing, why not? I mean, uh, he felt forced into condemning Jesus that morning anyway, and he was impressed with Jesus and I think he was pretty mad at the uh, high priests and the elders for pushing him to condemn Jesus when he knew Jesus was innocent. So. Um, he, he, he gives in. It is interesting, too, that he is surprised that Jesus is already dead. You can live pretty long being crucified, and Jesus gave up his spirit when his work was done, so uh, he died earlier than most people do. And we talked last week about breaking the legs. They didn't have to do that to Jesus because he died. The other guys were still alive. They, they were going to end their lives before the end of the day because Sabbath, they couldn't keep them up there, but uh, Jesus just died on his own pretty early, six hours. That's not that long to be crucified. So he's surprised. He he checks that out. Mark 15, 44, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. This is important. Ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So you have to remember this. An official inquiry was made as to whether or not Jesus was dead, and the officer in charge of the execution confirmed to the governor of the province that he was, in fact, dead. That's just an important detail to remember that. So there was an official inquiry made, and there was an official answer that he was indeed dead. Okay, so Joseph, I, I'm sure with the help of servants, retrieves Jesus' body from the cross, takes it to the tomb, so now back in Matthew 27, verse 59, it says, And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of a rock. These are pretty common in that part of the world. Um, let's talk about tombs just for a minute there. You, you might be surprised that the gospel writers mention that this is a tomb where no one's been laid. Uh, it's new. And you might be thinking, well, goodness, who shares their tomb, right? That kind of a thing. Well, a tomb in this situation is a lot more like a mausoleum. It's a place where multiple bodies can be placed over time. It's like a family crypt. That kind of an idea there. Um, they were caves cut deep into hillsides with several body length notches put into the walls 
where bodies could be laid, more than one, this one had never been used, which is just important for the whole idea of nobody confusing anybody about who's in there or anything like that. So that's an important fact, but um, it was brand new. So it would have had those niches or notches cut into the walls where a body could be laid. Bodies would be prepared and then placed in one of those niches after the, all the work was done for them. And then much later, long after that burial, somebody would come back and take those bones, and if you know if this is a wealthy family like his, put them in one of those boxes, an ossuary box, and then they would keep them there. So that was pretty typical. So these tombs also had a, a small room area uh, near those notches, you, nine feet by nine feet, maybe something like that, where the body could be worked on and prepared to, to place in that position, uh, the, the niche in the wall there. So it would be washed, the body, carefully wrapped in linen strips, and then layered with myrrh and aloes and spices and perfumes and things like that. But for Jesus, it was very late in the day. Sabbath was going to end everything. You had to get all the work done. They didn't have time to do the full body preparation treatment, but they did have some myrrh and aloes available, a mixture. So that was brought to the tomb by another prominent man, another member of the council. And that's Nicodemus. Hmm. He's talked about in John's Gospel, John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 39. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, that's that incident recorded in John chapter 3, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe. So he's the one that brings that. About a hundred pounds weight. That's a lot of myrrhs and aloes. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So that's Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, but uh, John's telling Nicodemus' portion in this. So that's pretty interesting. Nicodemus, how about that? Another secret disciple. So we remember Nicodemus mainly from John chapter 3, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, a teacher in Israel, a theologian, the man who came to Jesus by night to avoid being seen and, and said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Remember, he came to Jesus and said that to him. And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. So Jesus told Nicodemus also, as part of that conversation, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Well, finally the day came when Jesus was lifted up. It'd be really interesting to get into Nicodemus's head and know what he was thinking when that happened because he had heard Jesus say those very words. In that conversation in John 3, Nicodemus heard some of the most direct, profound truths that Jesus spoke during his time on earth, and it was personally given to him. Jesus gave him respect as a teacher of Israel, a theologian, to tell him these deep truths straight up because Nicodemus came to him. Nicodemus was slow to apprehend it, and Jesus chided him a little bit for not understanding spiritual things better, like the idea of the new birth, 
But somewhere in that conversation, maybe a few days later, maybe months or even a couple years later, Nicodemus had come to put his faith in Jesus as his Lord and Savior, his Messiah. But like Joseph, he was quiet about it because the consequences of speaking openly for Jesus were very grave if you were willing to do that. There's a little bit more about Nicodemus in John chapter 7. You might want to turn there. Jesus causes quite a stir in Jerusalem by saying that he himself is the source of living water. It's one of those feast days when Jesus stands up and says something which I think a lot of people would have found pretty wild, except that he's such a remarkable person. Um, people don't think he's just crazy. They think, well, there's something maybe to this, and they pay attention. So I'm going to read kind of a long section here. John 7:37. the whole context. It says, Now in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this is certainly the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, well, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. So they're having a theological discussion in the crowd about who Jesus might be. Some of them wanted to seize him. This is verse 44. But no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why didn't you bring him? The officers said, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Then it says in verse 50, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus before, being one of them, said to them, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And no, he doesn't say that. He said, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So what's Nicodemus doing? He's quietly defending Jesus, not directly as a follower, but as a man interested in justice. So that's how he's going to try to protect Jesus there as part of the council there. He's, he's saying, well, let's be fair. Let's be fair. Let's treat him in a fair way, even though secretly he, he believes. So they, they silence him with this nasty comment about Galilee. So Nicodemus, we can believe, did find Jesus to be all that he claimed to be. And he too, while not as forward as Joseph, willing to go to Pontius Pilate and to ask for the body, he does come to help and uh, he's willing to be a supporter of Jesus. And that's going to get out. So it's an open thing. So now he's willing also to identify himself as a follower of Jesus. And maybe Joseph's courage inspired him. We don't have all those details, but maybe so. Maybe they were friends. Oh, many people have been inspired by Joseph of Arimathea. 
And I think we should be too. In fact, Joseph's initiative and the kindness that he showed to the body of the Lord has inspired a lot of legends about him down through the ages. I guess the most famous one is that he went to England. And uh, it was said that he went to England in AD 63 and he brought the gospel there. And Joseph of Arimathea even shows up in the legends of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Uh, he reportedly brought the Holy Grail. That's this beautiful thing that was made to contain the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper. And he brought that with him to England. And Sir Galahad was the last and greatest of his descendants. And Galahad's white shield with the red cross on it, which he bore, was Joseph's actual shield. That's, that's how the story goes. It's pretty ridiculous as history, but it's pretty fun uh, to, to read that stuff. And all this medieval stuff is just to say that Joseph is highly honored in Christianity, in historical Christianity, Christian civilization. Uh, it would be pretty cool to end up in King Arthur stories because of a decision that you made to honor Jesus at some point in your life. But um, he was honored for the faithful act that he did, which took some courage, that he did for Jesus' body. Christianity has always honored slackers who turned around and stepped up when the time came. And Joseph is one of those kind of people. Where did Joseph and Nicodemus find the courage at that late hour to suddenly show their love for Jesus? Well, I guess they had been silent long enough. And that, you know, I think they just kind of came to the point where they'd had enough of what was going on. This monstrous injustice done to Jesus. This great evil. When Jesus was out preaching and doing his thing, you know, like they could probably just be silent and kind of waiting to see what was going to happen. But once this happened to him, uh, they were ready to they were ready to say something there. Uh, the men who had cowed them, the men that they feared, uh, they just went too far. And when things go too far, sometimes if you're a little timid yourself, maybe you'll stand up. And there's definitely a lesson here for us, I mean, what does our world need today? Courage, right? Courage for the truth. That's what our world needs. We need to be able to and willing to speak the truth to a culture that is increasingly hateful of Jesus Christ and the basic moral truths of the Bible. Um, God's people just have to be God's people. Not obnoxious people, faithful people. There's a difference there. Um, you look at the lives of the apostles. They were bold. They were truth-tellers. They were compassionate. They were good people. Popularity just doesn't come with following Jesus faithfully. If you want to be popular, you have to deny truths. And people are more than willing to do that. We see that happening throughout the church world all the time. More and more every day, actually. It's pretty shocking. And people follow those people. The people that deny core truths of the faith have millions of followers on Twitter and all these social media things. Um, but you know what's amazing about Joseph? It's just that as far as he knew, it was too late. He, he, all he had was a lifeless body to care for. And still he did it. The apostles didn't do it, and they at least had, quietly, Jesus had told them he was going to resurrect from the dead. They didn't believe that. They didn't know what that meant. They could, what does that mean? What's he talking about? Joseph didn't have that, but he stepped up to care for the body of Jesus. We know, we know that we serve a risen Savior.
How much more care should we have for his honor and his name? I'm sure Joseph regretted his previous silence. I'm sure he thought a lot about that. But as he washed and cared for Jesus' body, just kind of picture in your mind how deep must have been his regret for not having done more earlier. Even stood up at the Sanhedrin when Jesus was being condemned. We don't even know if he was there. But if he was, if he wasn't there, he should have been. If he was there, he should have said something. While Jesus lived, I'm sure that was going through his mind. Well, he's going to have his opportunities soon because Jesus is going to rise from the dead. But let's decide not to be secret disciples of Jesus. Don't wait to serve Christ after the opportunities have slipped away from you. You've got to be willing to be for him, true to him now in whatever circumstances you're in. How much better to serve him now confidently and full of joy than to have regrets later. You know, the world, it really doesn't have much of a choice except to disdain us. I mean, that's how the world goes. Jesus said that from the very beginning. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. That's okay. That's okay. We have this prophetic role in the world, not as prophets, but to speak the truth, to bear witness to God's kingdom, his sovereign rights, his great love, his salvation, which he brought to people. That's, that's worth sharing to people because people are in darkness and they need a light. So we need to be that light. Okay, the story, just wrap it up. Nicodemus and Joseph, they perform their task. Some ladies are watching while they're doing that, while they're putting the body in the tomb. Matthew 27, uh, 61, Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary, that's the Mary that's not Jesus' mother of the three Marys, sitting opposite the grave. And Luke tells us a little bit more about that. Luke 23, 55. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfume. So those are the two things they didn't bring, right? So John tells us that Nicodemus brought the myrrh and the aloes, but these gals are going to go and prepare the spices and the perfumes to make the, to fulfill the custom in a complete way to honor Jesus' body. And on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. So they went home to prepare better materials to attend and bless Jesus' body with. More than the aloes and the myrrh, they're going to bring the spices and the perfumes. They wanted to honor him as he deserved. So they're going to come back. It's Friday at dusk. They can't come back on Saturday. From Friday night to Saturday night, is that's the Sabbath. That's the Sabbath. That's how the Jews reckoned a day, from evening to the next evening. So Sabbath was from dusk to dusk, Friday night to Saturday night. So they couldn't return on Saturday night in the dark, so they decide to come back on Sunday morning at first light. As soon as they could, as soon as they could come back, they're going to be there to care for Jesus. And boy, that doesn't turn out the way they expected at all. And we'll talk about that one next time. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for brave souls, men who aren't naturally brave, men who had a lot to lose, but who stood up and were willing to do what was right to honor the Lord Jesus, even when they had no idea that he was going to be raised from the dead. We thank you for men like that, and we ask you to help us to be people like that ourselves, to have the courage of our convictions, to not be silent or cowed or afraid 
of what other people might think, but to be faithful in our witness for Him and our willingness to, in a winsome way and in a positive way, Father, to be courageous for Jesus. We just ask for you to help us do that, and we look forward to learning more in the next week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.